May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Let's be seated. Good morning. I couldn't see you back there, so I decided to come closer. Good morning, Diana. Good morning, Marilyn. I'd like to begin by speaking from this space. What I heard both Diana and Marilyn say yesterday when we were met to reflect, among other things, reflect on the long journey that has brought them to this moment. Thank you. Thank you. They and I, on behalf of all those whose lives will be changed for the better through their future ministries, are grateful to you, their companions, their supporters, their prayer warriors, their mentors, their beloved family and friends who have walked with them every step of the way. They wouldn't be the people they are if you weren't the people you are. And the ways you have been instruments of God's grace and transforming power for them. I'd also like to acknowledge here the congregations of All Souls and of St. Monica and St. James and all of the Diocese of Washington who have partnered together to ensure that Marilyn and Diana will exercise their ministries here among us in the Diocese of Washington. For while there is something deeply personal about the experience of becoming a priest in the church, it is a communal experience. It is a communal identity. Behind every person who says to God, echoing the ancient words of Isaiah, here am I, send me, there is a community that has in essence said, here are we, send us, send us, teach us, transform us. Diana and Marilyn are about to receive the mantle of a particular form of leadership, but as the activist priest Daniel Berrigan once said, we walk into the kingdom of God together or we don't walk in at all. Last month I participated in a preaching festival here in Washington. So picture this, preachers from all around the country came for the sole purpose of hearing other preachers preach, which is something we don't get to do very often because we're all working at exactly the same time. So over a thousand preachers came to be inspired by some of the most gifted preachers in the country and a few others who served as fillers, particularly in the early morning slots. And they came to consider, in the company of peers, this daunting task that we share. Whenever we stand before a community gathered, as I'm standing right now, to speak without interruption about God in the context of worship. The theme of this year's festival was politics and preaching. 
something we've all been thinking about quite a bit as we've been considering the Word of God in the context of all that's happening around us. And we heard powerful sermons from men and women who have dedicated their lives to the prophetic task of applying Jesus' gospel message of unconditional love and the biblical imperative of justice to the issues of our time. And we, the preachers in the congregation, I tell you, we hung on their every word. And we rose as one to applaud, feeling ourselves emboldened in the presence of such brilliance. And in that communal experience in the congregation, I was reminded of something that one of the great preachers, preaching instructors of the 20th century, a man by the name of Fred Craddock, said about this particular task of our ordained life. Sometimes, he said, in preaching, we speak to the people gathered. Sometimes, we speak for them. We speak for them, giving voice to what's stirring within them. They hear in our words resonance with deeper truths, deeper callings that God has already planted in their hearts, that they long to hear spoken aloud. And it's a big part of our job. It's a big responsibility, and it carries significant risks. I've just returned from a three-month sabbatical, which is this priceless, rejuvenating gift of time away from the daily demands of, of my job. And there were a few things to attend to in this first week back. And among them was this steady, growing chorus of people from our congregations reaching out to me, saying, would you please start talking, Bishop? Would you say something about fill in the blank? And every preacher here gathered knows what I'm talking about. It's not unique to bishops. You know what it's like when people come to us imploring us to address in this place the issues and the concerns that are deeply on their hearts. They hunger for us to speak from this sanctioned spiritual authority. That's the responsibility. Now let's talk about some of the risks. The most obvious, the most obvious is that our people, be they a congregation of 10 or a thousand, are rarely of one mind about anything. That's true that our churches have been part of the great sorting out of America in which we've all gravitated toward the people and institutions sources of information and inspiration that tend to confirm our already established worldviews and validate our prejudices, both known and not known to us. That's true. But even so, within a given body of people gathered to worship God, we will not speak for everyone. And that's not a problem, except when we assume that we are. Or if the people happen to disagree with what we're saying, and we simply assume that, well, they're wrong. As one preacher I admire has said on more than one occasion, consider the purpose in preaching. Do you want to influence the people who see the world differently than you do, or do you simply want to irritate them? 
right? Some of my biggest failures in the pulpit have been what I would consider now carelessness in preaching to the choir, saying something that I'm fairly sure the majority of the people will love me saying. That also prompted a very strong negative reaction from others who happen to see on that particular point of view, particular issue, see the world differently. And typically, and here's the thing that hurts the most, typically the most offensive thing that they heard me say, and the only thing they remember that I said, wasn't even the point of my sermon. In other words, I could have left it out. But I didn't, because I knew it would be pleasing for others to hear, or simply because I wanted to say it. Because did I mention? I was right. The Israeli poet Yehuda Amakai reminds us, from the places we are right, flowers never grow in the spring. The places we are, are right are hard and trampled like the ground. Another risk to avoid, the more challenging truths, another risk, excuse me, is to simply avoid the more challenging truths of the gospel that Jesus holds before us all when we speak for fear of evoking the very response I've just described. It makes it safer, and there's a lot of ground we can cover that we can all say yes to, but then it sends another message that there are some topics that we simply won't take up as a church. And I'm not referring only to politics here. Here's one example that's been on my mind as I prepare for tomorrow's sermon. What do we all know about tomorrow? What day is it tomorrow? It's Father's Day, right? In the congregation I served for nearly 20 years, preaching on either Mother's or Father's Day was a very risky thing to do. First of all, there was the cry of succumbing to the greeting card industry of consumerism, right? These are not holidays of the church, after all. They were invented to make us all feel obligated to buy flowers and neckties, blenders and power tools, and overpriced cards that express sappy sentiments. I got that a lot. Second, more importantly perhaps, for those whose family relationships were troubled, these Norman Rockwell-themed holidays are painful. And why would we bring all that pain into church when we don't have to? And third, when it comes to Father's Day, in the world I serve, certainly not true here, who wants to be like all those other Christians that celebrate patriarchy and all the images of God associated with male imagery? Why would we do that? But what will the majority of people be thinking about tomorrow when they come into church? They'll be thinking about Father's Day. And isn't there something for us to say about that with sensitivity and depth, compassion and insight about the importance of parental love and all the kinds of love that are wrapped up in it? And so tomorrow I've decided I'm going to preach about Joseph, Jesus' adopted father about whom we know very little because he disappears from the gospel stories right before or well before Jesus begins his public ministry. But the few poignant verses we have in which Joseph is the principal actor, we see a man who walked by faith and not by sight, 
as St. Paul writes in one of the passages we will read tomorrow. And given how easily and often Jesus speaks of our Heavenly Father as one who loves so lavishly and unconditionally, can we not imagine Joseph in whatever time he had in Jesus' life as such an example, one we might strive to emulate in whatever parental-like relationships we have with children or young people or anyone coming up behind us, male or female. And the third task, or the third risk in preaching on any topic, any topic at all, is rooted in our own sinfulness and the places where we are simply wrong. And thinking about that reality for any length of time is, a make, is enough to make the prospect of saying anything from the pulpit absolutely terrifying, as it should. Now forgive me, the rest of you for whom preaching is not your vocation, but your obligation to listen to. <laughs> I dwell on preaching here this particular part of our priestly vocation, Marilyn and Diana, because it is, I believe, an expression of our souls and our relationship to the living God. Rising to speak before a congregation is an audacious act of faith. For preachers, the miracle of the loaves and the fish is a weekly event. For we always begin knowing that we don't have enough. There's never enough. But Sunday, or whatever day, comes along anyway. And so we offer what we have. And we allow Jesus and the Holy Spirit, if we're at our best, enough room to provide what's needed between our mouths and others' ears. Preaching is also necessarily informed by the depth of our relationships to the people we're addressing in the name of God. How well do we know and love them? How accurately can we gauge what God's word for them might be? And how do we feel called not merely to speak to them, but for them on behalf of the wider world? When we met yesterday, the three of us, I spoke to you about the changing nature of prayer in the life of a priest and how forms of prayer and occasions for prayer can change and evolve through our vocation. And I said that primarily so you wouldn't panic if you found yourself unable to sustain particular practices that have sustained you thus far. Um, they might, but they might not. And others might take their place. And I have found, I suspect you have already, that the discipline of preparing to preach and the actual preaching of sermons is a pillar in my relationship to Christ. I wasn't kidding about the loaves and the fishes. It's what defines the experience as a form of prayer. And it's a particular dimension of prayer that has much in common with the prayer lives of the rest of you whenever your focus of prayer isn't on yourself, but on someone else. For in this, we are endeavoring to align ourselves with the spirit at work for a larger purpose beyond our understanding and to offer something of real value to you, to the people of God. And whenever it works, it doesn't always, it's among the most affirming experiences a priest can have. 
to know that God actually receives our imperfect offerings and makes of it, for someone, a miracle. And we know that such a miracle is possible for, when we know that such a miracle is possible for us, through us, we can help others know that too for themselves. Now in closing, let me say that when we gathered here six months ago for your ordination as transitional deacons, I spoke to you about your role as leaders, your particular call to move us as a community of faith from where we are now to God's preferred future. And quoting Simon Sinek, I'd like to remind you and others similarly called that the best leaders are actually the best followers. The best leaders see themselves as following a cause bigger than themselves, whom others then choose to follow. And nowhere is that more evident than when we speak in the name of God. We all believe in you, and we're committed to your leadership among us because we know who you are, lovers of God, followers of Jesus, endowed with gifts that our communities need. God has called you to this in your Marilynness, in your Diana-ness, who you are, as you are. So take care of yourselves. Trust the one who has brought you thus far. Speak for us, but also speak to us from your heart. As you have grown in love for God, help us to grow. You're not called to this alone. You are, as you know, you're part of the body. You have heard God say, have, you have heard God's call and you have responded. If you were here, you could be sent so that the rest of us could say the same with greater confidence each day. Here, here we are. Send us. Send us. Send us. In the name of God. Amen.